Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson to learn more. I'm feeling good. And I know there's emotional things on our minds, but I'm also feeling like I can handle those things. I'm thinking I want to do it. Okay. But how are you feeling? Um, I think I can do it. I guess that's where I'm at is some trepidation, but not enough to say we shouldn't do it. I don't want you to make this decision based on you don't want to disappoint me. Well, I don't want to disappoint you. I know. But the actual best thing for this journey, whenever it happens, is that that's not the most powerful thing motivating you to want to do it. And I'm totally fine if we don't do it today. I could also go for a walk out in the sun. Yeah, maybe that would help. Clear our heads a little bit. I feel really bad that... You're 31 weeks pregnant, you know? We got a lot going on and... And if we're going to, say, go for rocket launch, then we both have to turn our keys, you know? You want to go for a walk? Yeah. Let's go for a walk. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Labyrinths. Stepping through the looking glass is not something we take lightly. Even though I'd taken psychedelic drugs before and had some profound experiences on even small doses, I had never done what some call the hero's dose. In this case, five dried grams of psilocybin mushrooms, a dose that would likely obliterate my ego. I was eager to try. I was very pregnant at the time, so taking mushrooms at all was out of the question for me. And given my deep-seated difficulties with mind alteration, the dark side of which I saw in prison, even being adjacent to Chris while he went down this path was a challenge. On top of that, I was dealing with some interpersonal difficulties and having premonitions that I would die in childbirth. I was a bit of a nervous wreck. We called off the rocket launch several times before we both were ready. In preparation for this trip, we sought advice from all the people we'd connected with during this miniseries. Michael Pollan was quick to caution us about the legal risks. Be careful. Those of us who live on the West Coast, the federal government seems so far away and such a faint shadow on the horizon. But even though it's decriminalized in Oregon and may soon be in Washington state, it's still a federal crime. But aside from the legal risks, there are serious psychological risks. In describing his own high-dose experience, Sam Harris started with a caveat. Psychedelics are not for everyone. If you do them, you should do them with a guide. I don't recommend tripping at parties or concerts or out in the world where you can stumble into the lives of others or into traffic. And anyone at risk for psychosis probably shouldn't trip at all. As I wrote in Waking Up, some people can't afford to give the anchor of sanity even the slightest tug. Harris wasn't the only one who recommended finding a guide. 
I found that that really made the difference in creating that set and setting where I could really surrender to what was happening. Go with your gut, too. I mean, it's like hiring any kind of therapist. You know, you have a sense that you have a rapport with this person or not. And do you feel safe in their presence? People have very good experiences without guides. But on a high dose, you don't want to be alone. Because if your ego starts to dissolve, if you don't feel safe, you're going to fight like crazy because your ego is your defense. And this experience is asking you to lower all your defenses. And that's a big leap of faith. If you wait until 2023 and live in Oregon, you can sign up for a psilocybin therapy session. Barring that, there's the underground guide community, which has recently been shaken up by abuse allegations. So care is warranted there as well, if you can find a guide. That's not always easy. The other route is to figure out how to do it on your own. That, too, is risky in a number of ways and presents some obstacles and points of careful consideration. With a trusted guide, especially a licensed one, you don't have to worry whether what you're consuming is actually psilocybin or what the dose is. If you end up asking around and find someone willing to sell or gift you some mushrooms, you still may not have any reliable information about the strain or potency. You know, it's important to know the material you're working with, and growing mushrooms is the best way to assure yourself that that's what you're getting. Cultivating your own mushrooms at home can seem intimidating, but it's not actually that complicated. And if you visit sites like shroomery.com, you'll find thriving message boards and cultivation guides to start you on that journey. And it all starts with spores. Which, incidentally, are not illegal to own or sell as long as your intent is for research purposes. And Shroomery and other places can point you where to find spores online, though you'll likely have to purchase them with cryptocurrency. Now again, we are not recommending, condoning, or admitting to having done this ourselves. And for any DEA agents listening, this podcast is a work of fiction. So, in lieu of finding a guide, we did the next best thing. A ton of research, months of reading, and we connected with leading experts in this field and interviewed them for this podcast series. And almost everyone gave us advice about set and setting, including neuroscientist Robin Carhart Harris. If you don't trust the people that you're with, then you're more inclined to have a so-called bad trip. If you're preoccupied, if you're distracted by things, you're more likely to have a tough time. That's really important that you have the therapeutic container. I think without it, things are more likely to go awry. We want to be careful to point out here that none of the advice these people relayed to us should be taken as a guarantee of a safe and beneficial experience or as direct recommendations. As Paul Stamets pointed out to us, I'm not a medical practitioner. I'm not a therapist. I'm a mycologist. So... I'm not going to make a recommendation, Okay. but I will tell you what I have found important for my own experiences. Perfect. Okay. That's really important. Figuring out the right setting is largely about answering a set of practical questions. I love being kept warm. If you can feel cold, it's unpleasant. So having a very comfy space. I personally love the transition of dusk into night. And for folks who haven't done this, the colors are brighter. The fractals are amazing. <laughs> the background against a blackscape, you see a dance of molecules that is visually just amazing. I think having lots of water handy, your heartbeat may slightly increase. 
I love dogs. I love puppies. <laughs> I, do you have a dog? We have three cats who are very cuddly. So <laughs> that's really really makes a difference because the, yeah. the animals seem to know, you know, mm. and they have such wisdom when you look at them. So I think all those things are helpful. But then at the same time, I want to emphasize it's important that you not break the law. I want to be very clear about that. So all the obvious things that I've said, and I have a book called Psilocybin Mushrooms of the World, and I have a chapter in there that I wrote called Good Tips for Great Trips, (laughs) and it's still referenced today. Those practical questions about setting vary depending on whether you plan to trip in nature or in a controlled indoor environment. Chris wanted to experience the heroic dose of mushrooms in two different settings, deep in the forest and in silent darkness looking inward. We asked Sam Harris about the latter in particular. I'm preparing for a five-gram mushroom trip in silent darkness, and Amanda's going to be my sitter. And we're curious if you have any advice or, or just thoughts to focus on going into that experience, both for me as the journeyer and for Amanda as a sitter. Well, I, I can only speak to the five dried grams in darkness side of it, but I didn't do my trip in silence. I actually had music playing and I had someone sitting with me so that, you know, her job was really just to man the playlist, which she had curated. And I got to say the the music, it certainly felt like an advantage. It certainly disappeared for some considerable stretch of time. I was not aware of music always driving the experience, but when I was aware of it, it gave me something to to ride into the next, you know, wave of epiphany. It was a kind of, I mean, anchor is the wrong word, but it provided some kind of positive orientation. So you might want to reconsider the silence versus music component to it, because it was good. And, you know, for music, I think I would suggest something that is in the, the world music, percussive. I mean, it could also be electronica or whatever you like, but I wouldn't put on something that is heavy with vocals that you have to think about, right? I wouldn't put Bob Dylan on and think you're just going to get more into Bob Dylan than <laughs> anyone on in, in human history. The mindset is the other part of this equation. A common way to help create an appropriate mindset is to start with an explicit intention. That said... You'll be surprised what comes up. It's very common to have thoughts or experiences that come up that have maybe been suppressed, hmm. that need to be talked out. If the dark side enters, you're above that. Okay, you're stronger than the dark side, whatever that dark side may represent it itself in. Bear in mind the experience will only last four hours. Okay, so there's a light at the end of the tunnel. As far as your attitude during the trip, again, it really is, resistance is the only real problem. If things are ever getting bad or going sideways, the remedy for that is to surrender with an attitude of curiosity and compassion. And if you're experiencing a painful state of mind, just wrap that in compassion for yourself and for anyone else who's ever felt such a state of mind, that you can always at least potentially drop back another level and find a purchase on compassion or curiosity rather than being merely identical to the painful emotion that might be there. The recipe for real discomfort is 
to try to hold on to anything. If you're jumping over the falls, you want to be as relaxed as you can be on the way down. You've decided to dive, right? So you might as well just not be in the mode of a clenched fist as you're encountering each change in experience. But what about for me as the sitter? The very idea of having to be the support person for someone jumping over a waterfall, someone who I normally depend on for emotional stability myself, was filling me with anxiety. I think your job is just to be there in case anything out in the real world requires attention. Right. There are a couple of reasons to have someone sit with you when you do any kind of trip. And the first is what happens if the doorbell rings? Right. Or what happens if there's a phone call that could not be ignored for whatever reason? Although, you know, you probably you turn off your phones so that you're not in that situation. But if the house catches fire, you, you want someone in a position to, to say that's a real fire as opposed to <laughs> right. the, the fire of charisma. Yeah. Walk towards it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's job number one. Having absolute privacy is important. Making sure you have somebody else, Amanda. Because then you're with Chris, making sure you have another person as a peripheral person to say, do not disturb these people right now. You have to feel safe, Chris. You have to absolutely feel safe, and you need to be loved. Feeling that overwhelming sense of love amplifies out enormously. Other than that, you can just be there to get a glass of water or you know whatever is needed and any kind of reassurance. So, yes, yeah, don't do it alone. Do it with reverence and some intention. And the experience may not correspond to the intention. Sometimes it, it takes you where you need to go, but it's good to start with an intention. Give a little thought, like, what do you pray to come out of this experience? And articulate that. I think that's really helpful too. It sounds a lot like your own thinking about how stories work and setting an intention and then end up surrendering to the needs of the story and giving yourself <laughs> to what the story seems to demand of you. That's a very interesting analogy. Yeah, I think it is. It is very similar. Because when you set out to write, you should have an intention, but you shouldn't feel bound by it. Because you're going to learn things you didn't know in the process. That's the only reason it's interesting. It's not like building a house from a plan where it's got to come out a certain way and you really can't make changes. It should be improvisational to a certain extent. And so you need an intention to start to get you moving, but you should be willing to let it go and let the process unfold. So yeah, beautiful analogy, Christopher. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> the story we're telling right now is not what we imagined when we first began working on this miniseries. And a big part of that is that we've learned the value of surrendering expectations, of not trying to force reality to fit your preconceived notion. Your experience just is what it is in any present moment. And if you try to force it to cease or extend longer than it wants to, or will it to be other than it is, you end up with suffering. These are insights we gained from developing a mindfulness practice during the pandemic. But we are by no means experts. That said, learning to surrender to experience turned out to be a crucial form of preparation for these heroic ego-death trips I was planning. It was important to me, too, as the sitter, that this was a slow progression. Chris started with tiny doses and gradually, over the course of many months, worked his way up. And it was only after a year of daily meditation 
After interviewing all the luminaries featured in this podcast and taking psilocybin in carefully controlled doses in a variety of carefully chosen settings, and always with reverence and intention that I was ready to take the plunge and step all the way through the looking glass, with no idea who, if anyone, I'd find on the other side. We could give you lots of reasons to support Labyrinths on Patreon, including ad-free episodes and exclusive patron-only content. But why not hear it direct from a listener? My name is Henry, and I've been a supporter of the Labyrinths podcast for some time. I can totally relate to the concept of feeling lost, and I think the stories have helped me tremendously getting through these last couple of years, and I think they would help others as well. Visit patreon.com slash Robinson. The way is not difficult. It just dislikes choosing. That is a Zen koan from the Waking Up Meditation app. It was a North Star for me during my first heroic dose in the forest, where I hoped to meditate on my impending fatherhood. We could say that this line, the way is not difficult, means essentially awakening is not difficult this different register of consciousness, here and now, wherein all is less solid, all is less oppositional. Self and world are not so separate. Coming to experience that is not, in fact, difficult. It's already here. But it dislikes choosing. What this is trying to tell us, I think, is that choosing obscures it. Our constant tendency to be making choices, preferences, liking, disliking. I repeated this koan to myself as a mantra throughout the experience. This was a way to help me remember to surrender, to let go of my preferences and desires. We found ourselves in a lush grove when the first wave hit Chris. You said that you couldn't see for a second? Yeah, everything kind of became greenish-white. Mm. Everything kind of got fused into one for a second there. You definitely look like someone who maybe is a little seasick and you're just trying to yeah. hang mm. in there. If this was the whole experience, it would not be good. Yeah. As the psilocybin hit me in another wave, the world began shimmering around me. What's going on with the ground? Oh, man. It's moving. How is it moving? There's little bugs. There's one little bug. This bug right here? Yeah, that's the one little bug. That's the only bug? That's the only bug. No way. The rest of those are just little, like, pine needles. Well, everything is just kind of sliming. Sliming? Yeah. Like, all those little needles look like, you know, they're little worms. Oh, is it cute? Yeah. We were still near the trailhead and parking lot, and after looking at the trail map, we decided to hop in the car and drive a mile down the road to a more isolated trail. As we parked, the sunlight was filtering through the sunroof in the Subaru. It felt so warm and comforting on my face, so I decided to close my eyes as the next wave hit me.
So the update is Chris said that he felt like he was dead for a minute and it was great. And then he started laughing hysterically in the car and he's got tears going down his eyes. Now he's being a statue. Shortly after I died, the opposite happened. What? I'm everything. What do you mean? I mean, I'm everything. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear more about what it's like to be everything. Like when you were like, oh, I'm sorry, because you bumped me or something. And I was like, why would you be sorry about that? We're the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm everything. We're everything. That's so weird having your sense of ego just gone. Hmm. Sounds really nice. It's nice for me. I could see how people could get really scared in this space if they're not ready for it. If they didn't know what was happening to them, hmm. you know? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's easy. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's just totally easy. Narrator. It was not totally easy. My body viscerally objected to what it had good reason to assume was poison. In the immediate moment, my Darwinian fitness had plummeted, and without Amanda, I might have walked into a ravine. We found a spot to lie down, and Chris heaved and tossed on his back, spasming, but not in pain as much as experience. At times, he seemed rapturous. You're just saying that it was kicking your ass a little bit? In a good way? After five hours in the forest, we drove back to the woodland cabin we'd rented for the evening. The next morning, Chris had some more coherent thoughts about his psychedelic death. <laughs> I was thinking about my death this morning, and I think I found better words to describe it. I feel like what happened was, in the moment when I like closed my eyes and the sun was coming through the skylight, I got enveloped in this bath of warm light. My awareness didn't go away, but the only thing I was aware of was just this warm stasis. Anything that was recognizably me was not there. I have never felt stillness like that. And it was warm stillness and perfect stillness. And like the little continual chatter of your own brain that's always thinking of stuff and remembering things and all that stream of consciousness wasn't there. The only thing that was there was this warm bath and couldn't hear anything. I couldn't think. I wasn't thinking. I wasn't I, you know? Right. Yeah, you straight up looked at me in the face and were like, whoa, I'm you. <laughs> yeah. It felt so easy. Like, the way is easy, but it dislikes choosing, you know? Like, I didn't choose to die, or I didn't choose to dissolve. It didn't feel like I had to fight through anything. It was just, it's like it had always been there waiting for me. Do you remember what you were asking me? You had your hand against my belly. I asked you what you thought it was, if it was a boy or a girl. You thought it was a girl. That. that moment was okay. That wasn't that scary. That was a good moment. Somewhere around there, it was difficult because... I was so disconnected from my life and where, where it would go. I didn't have a vision of, I'm with my loving wife with a family. Like, that's not what I saw. Like, I had died a little bit ago, right? So I was, like, I could also just be dead. Like, maybe what happens in my life is I kill myself, right? That's a thing that could happen. I had tasted that ceasing 
And I found myself a little scared by how much I liked the idea of not being. So I don't know. It was difficult, but interesting. I don't know if scary is the right word. Probably not scary, but difficult. Scary was just the right word for me. Going into the forest, I was so focused on supporting Chris so he would have a positive trip, it never occurred to me that I was on a journey as well. And the last thing I had emotionally prepared myself for was the idea that my husband and the father of the life growing inside of me would be so enamored with death of all things. I was shaken. We tried to carry that lesson forward, that walking through these doors affected both of us as we planned for trip number two, this time at home, in darkness and in silence. The idea of cutting off all sensory inputs was a little intimidating, and I thought back to something Sam Harris had said. This was always Terence McKenna's recommendation. Five dried grams of mushrooms in the dark. And he always talked about this experience as though he were throwing down a gauntlet of sorts. He would say things like, if you really think you have an interest in the nature of mind, if you really have the courage of your convictions, well then just take five grams of mushrooms in the dark and you'll see how much you didn't know. Okay, how many days until your baby pops out? 37. 37 days. I'm feeling uncomfortable. And... I'm about to, I don't know, give birth to my ego. Yep. <laughs> We've got this room cozied up, pillows and blankets, and... I like your tokens. Yeah, I thought it was a good idea to gather things from the house that were meaningful, just as kind of focus objects. And so I've got some ultrasound pictures. I've got some photo booth strips of you and me. I'm trying to think of what my intention should be. I think I want to remember that there's a lot of people around me who are really loving, kind people. And I want to be deserving of their love. Is that an intention? Yeah. Okay. Well, here goes. I'm going to eat this sucker. <laughs> With that, I tucked Chris under the blankets. He put in earplugs and lowered his eye shade and started focusing on his breath. I turned the recorder on, and for the next few hours, Chris laid there while I journaled, surrounded by the cats who seemed drawn to the room. There's something so perfectly poetic about recording hours of silence during a psychedelic journey, proof that the experience is beyond translation. But we can't help but try. After a few hours, Chris came out of his meditative state, and we started chatting. And you keep um, kind of flopping. <laughs> I know. I know. How come? <clears throat> My body doesn't feel good. No, I'm sorry. Oh, but you have such a good attitude about it. <laughs> Whoa. Oh, my. It's coming out of your waves. It's kicking your ass? It's kicking my ass. <laughs> <laughs> I keep forgetting that I did this to myself. <laughs> you took a funny drink and now you're a funny person. I know. We had laid out tokens and focus objects around the bed. 
And now Chris picked up the 20-sided die that represented both the many fun hours we'd spent during the pandemic playing Dungeons and Dragons, but which also conjured the idea of randomness, possibility, and identity. In that fantasy world of role-playing, we inhabited alter egos. Chris's character was a gnomish wizard named Fisnik, who believed all reality was an illusion. I should roll a d20. Yeah? Yeah. I'd roll a fortitude save. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, it's never been my uh, strong suit. Fortitude. I'm depending on you to bring the fortitude. I need that. A wizard. It's funny how that matches up with real life. Right? Mm-hmm. I'm no wizard, <laughs> but I'll carry those bats. <laughs> yeah. What happened to my d20? It's right there on your chest. Fortitude save. You rolled... A five. <laughs> I know. Typical. Typical. I think you're a nurturer. Mm. What is that? Innkeeper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're an NPC. <laughs> you're not an adventurer. That's honestly the, probably what it is. You're not out there making a name for yourself, taking the quest. You know, it's not you. Yeah, I don't think I need that. No, it was put on you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's trying to make some beds here. <laughs> yeah, you're an innkeeper. <laughs> we figured it out. Is that your uh, conundrum? It's only a conundrum in a world <clears throat> where you have to be on a quest. It's true. I slipped into actual reality. Am I a D&D character? <laughs> Wait a minute. Who am I? <laughs> my Fisnik? Why did you choose Fisnik? What do you mean? I mean, you picked among the people. Oh, as my partner? Yeah. Mm. You picked the guy who was going to lick toads. I did pick, <laughs> right? of all people, <laughs> the improbable <clears throat> choice of the toad licker. I know, right? Um, you chose the guy that was going to eat... The poison mushroom. Mm-hmm. What ultimately matters to me is a genuine curiosity and interest in truth. Because I, the thing that really <clears throat> hurts me the most is being gaslit. That's your trauma. It's my line. Like, I just, I can't. Yeah. I don't like it when people lie to me, and I don't like it when people lie to themselves. And you are... Of a particular ilk that very, very seriously attempts to not lie to yourself. Yeah. And, you know, your genuine interest and curiosity and truth led you to this place. It's out of a genuine search of understanding. And I can totally and utterly respect that. Are you still recording? Yeah. Wow. Why did we do that? <laughs> this is just the most indulgent fucking thing to record also why i don't know there's a lot we could be focused on what do you mean what's more important than figuring out how to be well that's a great question <laughs> maybe nothing maybe nothing is more yeah. important than figuring out how to be
roughly six months after Eureka was born, and just as we were preparing to wrap up this miniseries, Amanda decided it was finally time for her to poke her head through the mirror and see what all the fuss was about. And it just so happened that a friend of ours was planning his first heroic dose for the very same day. Little did we know that motherhood would figure prominently in both their trips. So fun coincidence that we both decided to trip on the same day. I know, that was so great. <laughs> what were the circumstances of your trip? It was inside. I drank mushroom tea and then got into bed with my blankets and my sleep mask. Oh yeah, and I was listening to Niels Fromm mm -hmm. uh, at Chris's recommendation, which was amazing, perfect. <laughs> Excellent. And what was the dosage again? It was four to five grams. Okay. Did you get to ego dissolution place? I did, but I didn't feel like I was really forced there. There were hmm. times when I just meditated and the ego did dissolve. Hmm. But interestingly, it felt kind of unimportant and masturbatory to be there. I was like, I don't really care about self-transcendence right now. I want to work <laughs> on my values. And so then like, I shifted into a more values-oriented realm. It just felt like, okay, this is this is like bliss and no suffering, but like, what's the point? <laughs> <laughs> How very entrepreneurial of you. Did you set that intention? My intention was primarily self-love and self-acceptance. Hmm. And I think that did get borne out, but just not in the way that I expected. So my mother played a really central role in my trip. And for context, I have what I think is the best mom in the world. She has just showered me with unconditional love. And the narrative that was so clear and this, the central place from which I got strength was her love. And I kind of reoriented my entire life around that love that she had poured into me. Hmm. And so it felt as the music was going through loops of, ecstatic and sad, each one of these arcs, I would kind of feel that I was folding another layer of my mother's love around me. And it was hardening into an indestructible shell. Hmm. And I liken it to like the way that you have to fold steel to make a katana really strong. Right. Yeah. That's amazing. And that was unexpected, I assume. Yeah, it was unexpected to see my self-worth and my strength as like directly originated from that, hmm. uh, as opposed to all the other things in my life. Yeah, that was that was surprising. Did you feel a little bit like you were your mom for a while? No, definitely not. It was very much her as an external being pouring that love into me. So I feel so blessed to have had that relationship with her. And just, yeah, I want to double down on that and do things out in the external world to pay respect to that. Yeah, I love that. Mothers don't go into being mothers in order to be thanked. Even to this day, I'm still shocked, like just <laughs> shocked and in awe that there is a human being that came out of my body <laughs> and that is a part of my body in a really, really fundamental, inextricable way. That has been my other sort of angle into self-love because here's this human being that is absolutely her own person and yet she came from my body and I love her so intensely and 
in a way that I cannot love myself. And yet it's like a weird expression of self-love to love this other part of you mm. so intensely. Interesting. And during my trip, which my intention going into the trip was community. I was thinking about community. How do I feel connected to people? How do I, as a mother especially, create this network of human beings in my life that not only make me feel safe, but especially make my daughter feel safe and my family feel safe? How do I weave that web? And how do I be super mindful of this like garden of human beings that I'm tending for my daughter as opposed to feeling like I'm a forager wandering through the wilderness and encountering good people along the way, mm. which is how I felt most of my adult life. How do I be more intentional and curative? That was what I went into with it. First of all, I just had a lot more fun than I was anticipating. My trip was <laughs> walking through the woods with Chris and just laughing, laughing and laughing and la and just like hurting from the laughing and being out of breath from the laughing and just like how absurd everything seemed to me. I was just like thinking about existence and about pain and about pleasure. And I was just like, it's all just silly and funny <laughs> and like I had this moment of we were like kind of walking on this sort of strenuous hike with a lot of ups and downs and I had this moment of being like going up going down it's all the same it's all just going <laughs> and like thinking that was so funny and I kept saying it's all the same it's all the same you said you sometimes you're just heavier <laughs> <laughs> right sometimes you're heavier <laughs> and, and that's okay it's all the same that fundamental sameness to existence, that lack of preference for one mode of experience over another, is something I'd really felt too. But the absurdity of that, of life, really brought Amanda to tears of laughter. It's so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> Why is this so funny to you? <laughs> Why is it funny to you? Ugh, it's so absurd. It's so absurd. Do you just like feel like it's so absurd all the time? And um, there's like no reason. When I really think about it, yes. <laughs> it's easy to like get into the rhythm of your day and not think about and it. And to be like, it's it's a thing. And but whenever you like try to pin yeah. down what what's going on with reality, <laughs> it's, it's like, no, wait a minute. This is bonkers. So, so, <laughs> this can't be what we're doing, is it? It's so absurd. <laughs> But then at the peak, peak of my trip, we had gone the two and a half miles to the ocean. We were sitting next to the ocean and Chris gave me an apple, which was beautiful. <laughs> but it was just a beautiful apple. It's just so beautiful. The epitome of apple. <laughs> my mouth feels so funny. <laughs> <laughs> Your hand looks like Eureka's hand. It is Eureka's hand. <laughs> and they're Eureka's hands. <laughs> I don't know quite what you mean by that. And again, no hallucination. My hands didn't change their look. I just looked at my hands and they were Eureka's hands. They were not mm. my hands. They were her hands. And I was just shocked. And then I took a bite of this apple and I was like, 
oh my God, this is Eureka's mouth. This is not my mouth. This is Eureka's mouth. And she's never eaten an apple before. And she doesn't know how to eat an apple. And I just had this like intense embodiment and empathy for what my daughter's experience is navigating a world that she doesn't know and that she only has like the most limited experience with. And sort of realizing in that moment that there is so much joy and so much pain that she doesn't know yet and that I know and somehow I'm supposed to pass on that knowledge to her in a way that mm. is going to be empowering to her and not debilitating. I don't know. It wasn't a huge intellectual moment. It was just a, a moment of yeah. deep, deep care and sympathy and compassion and also excitement and joy for my daughter. Like one day she is going to eat an apple <laughs> and I'm so excited for her. That's beautiful. Did either of you have difficult moments during your trips? Yeah, I would say I had very powerful moments, but I felt completely empowered going into them and I ran towards them. Mm -hmm. There was a big motif of challenging myself all throughout it. There would be realizations that, okay, my mother's unconditional love is where I get my strength. But if that's the case, then what happened if she's gone? Mm. And so I actually was like, okay, well then let's have her die. And I held like a funeral for my mom. It felt like I was in front of this massive silhouetted altar. And like, it felt like my consciousness was stretched vertically and the whole scene was black and gold, which is unlike anything else in my trip. And I just kept saying out loud, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I came to terms with my mother eventually passing. Yeah. And there were also just past experiences of my life that I felt like I had a flashlight of love and I was going and shining it on all the cobwebs in the corners <laughs> of my mind. And I was like, oh, that thing I'm really ashamed of, let's go there. Let's put it front and center in mm. my consciousness and let's accept that as part of me. Oh, that's lovely. The whole point of this conversation was to do further integration work, but just talking is no guarantee of lasting positive change. This is something both Sam Harris and Robin Carhart Harris noted. Many people have good experiences that don't change their lives very much. So to get the benefit, I think you need to approach the use of these tools seriously. And after the ecstasy, the laundry kind of themes, you might have had these profound enlightenment-like experiences, but then you come down. And how do you kind of decompress and live in this nine-to-five world and... Uh, take the useful learnings, but also function and be part of this world. And so the question is like, whatever insights the two of you have gained from this, do you feel like you are going to be able to hold on to them? My first thought is that all of the revelations that I had all seemed to have originated from me anyway. I didn't really feel like they were coming from some sort of external place. I feel like I was just able to tap into something that was already percolating inside of me in some subconscious part of my mind. And once you see it, you can't unsee it, I suppose. I actually felt like I was guided at points in my journey. There was this feminine presence, very different from motherly or anything. She had a mm. very indifferent vibe 
to her. <laughs> she 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 kind of felt like a uh, like a board tour guide, and she was like, "Okay, and this is all your <laughs> this is all your shit, and um, let's go over here now." Yeah. So and to your left, <laughs> I felt like I was in conversation with something that had the power to show me things that people in my life can't show me. Hmm. Even when I've felt like unlovable and they've said, just so you know, from the outside, you look perfectly lovable, right? They can say things like that, but it doesn't land. Hmm. But with the you know help of the little fungus, it did very much land. Cool. Yeah. So regarding integration, it definitely feels like it is a ongoing process and turning some of the insights into actions or actionable items can sometimes be difficult. The drug seems to be really good at showing platonic ideals of things, at least in my experience. And that can give you a North Star with which you can go towards things. And then there's a little bit of effort or a lot of introspection and returning back to it when it comes time to pattern match those platonic ideals onto the messy things you see in real life. Ah, yes real life, and that constant feeling of being lost. Fun real-life fact. Since we started this mini-series, a new bill has been introduced in Washington State, the Psilocybin Wellness and Opportunity Act, which is similar to Oregon's Measure 109. If it passes, fingers crossed, Washingtonians like ourselves will be able to legally enjoy the benefits of psilocybin therapy in a safe, regulated, and accountable system. Now, you may be asking, should I go down this rabbit hole myself? It's a good question. All we'll say is that only you can decide the answer. In our experience, psilocybin doesn't give you the key to get you out of the labyrinth of your life. It's more like it launches you in the air where you can see the labyrinth from above. And when you crash back into your life, you're still faced with the same forks in the maze, the same uncertainty about your future, but more acceptance that this is the deal. We're all trapped in the labyrinth. There is no way out. There's just the way. And it's not difficult. It just dislikes choosing. As Sam Harris told us, this can't be the whole program. Psilocybin and other psychedelics can give you access to new landscapes of mind. They can show you that it's possible to let go of judgment, to feel an expansive love for all living things, including yourself, and to be utterly present in your life. But you still need a sense of ethics and a more sustainable method, like mindfulness practice, to hold on to the insights psilocybin can offer. Speaking of ethics, in the near future, we'll be diving into the ethics of true crime, the role of citizen detective work, and the impact that telling these stories has on the people at the center of them. In the meantime, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at ManUnderBridge. At Amanda Knox. And if this has felt like a hero's dose of a podcast, please consider leaving five dried stars in your Labyrinth review. That makes no sense. <laughs> this episode was written, edited, and sound designed by us, with theme music by Josh Budo Karp. Because that, when you held that clover in front of me and you were twirling it, like, it was just glowing. One of the most beautiful things I've ever seen was that <laughs> clover. Yeah. It was kind of sparkly and iridescent, and mm -hmm. the twirling made it feel like it was like kind of pulsing with its own organicness. I asked you, like, what do you see? And you said, it's beautiful. And then you said, it's me. <laughs> <laughs>
Is that what I said? <laughs> yeah, you said it was you. Captain's Log, Stardate 89361.5. We've encountered a fascinating alien civilization. The people of Patreon Prime are humanoid in appearance, but possess vastly greater degrees of nuance, compassion, and intelligence than any race we have so far encountered. But what is perhaps most striking is their generosity. Captain, the warp core is going critical. Warning. Divert all energy to patreon.com slash Robinson. 